From Bloomberg Law, you're listening to Uncommon Law. My name is Adam Allington. The second week of testimony in the trial of Derek Chauvin resumed this week, with the state calling a handful of law enforcement experts to testify that the tactic Derek Chauvin used by pressing his knee into the neck of George Floyd was not an approved form of restraint. Lieutenant Johnny Mercil was in charge of use of force training for the Minneapolis Police Department during the time of George Floyd's death last year. In this back and forth, prosecutor Steve Slisher showed Mercil a photo of Chauvin kneeling on Floyd. Sir, is this an MPD trained neck restraint? No, sir. Is this an MPD authorized restraint technique? Uh, knee on the neck would be something that uh, does happen in use of force that isn't unauthorized. And under what circumstances would that be authorized? How long can you do that? I don't know if there's a time frame. It would depend on the circumstance of the time. Which would include what? The type of resistance you're getting from the subject that you're putting the knee on. Say, for example, the subject was under control and handcuffed. Would this be authorized? I would say no. While stating that using a knee on a person's neck is not a trained Minneapolis Police Department neck restraint, he also said that it wasn't unauthorized when using force either. In addition to Mercil, the jurors also heard from Minneapolis Police Department Chief Medaria Arredondo, whose testimony didn't mince words about the use of force Chauvin employed on George Floyd. Once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was... um, in distress and trying to verbalize that, that should have stopped. There's, there's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control over the, in the first few seconds, but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. With me here to discuss use of force training and how it might factor in the prosecution's attempts to prove Chauvin's culpability is Laura Scary. She's an attorney with Diano and Scary, a Chicago-based firm with a long history of representing police officers in civil cases. In addition to her legal background, Scary was herself a police officer before going to law school. So, Laura, what do you take away from Chief Arredondo's testimony, saying in no uncertain terms that Chauvin didn't follow procedure? That's something to be reckoned with because I've never had a case, and and I'm only speaking from a civil aspect, but I've never had a case where a chief or anyone in the command staff testified against a police officer. So this, I think, is somewhat unusual because we don't see that very often. The point made by the chief and others was basically that at some point, Chauvin's use of force was excessive given the threat posed by George Floyd after he was put in handcuffs. How big of an impact does that have on the defense's argument that George Floyd's death was caused by a heart condition or drug use? Right. You know, as if I'm sitting as a as a juror, I'm going to be looking at that and I'm there there's going to be some weight, you know, given to that testimony for sure. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, uh distinguishing whether it was the tactic versus 
the amount of time that the tactic was used. And if it's true that, you know, chokeholds were not banned, and, and by the way, you know, we're not dealing with a chokehold, right? We're dealing, you know, with a person who's lying prone on the ground and there's a knee that is on the shoulder area. You know, some people are saying on the neck, some people are saying on the back, you know, whatever the case may be. But what's, what's interesting is you can have potential jurors, you know, looking at the tactic and then being told by experts, you know, saying that the tactic was proper. Um, but they may end up taking issue with the amount of time that the tactic was used. And and I can tell you, you, you know, I do um, presentations all over the country. I speak with people, uh, sworn officers. I speak with people who are, you know, generally favorable to police officers. I speak with people who, you know, look at law enforcement with some level of distrust. And I think the common theme that I'm seeing just from my own little, you know, survey is that um, people are certainly taking issue with the amount of time that the tactic was used. Oftentimes, in cases involving excessive use of force, the issue of training is something that can be used quite effectively by the defense, right? I mean, they have a number of different tools and techniques at their disposal, and in most cases, they're given broad freedom to respond to threats as they see fit. But it sounds like you're saying that line of thinking may not be the best argument here, based on the length of time that Chauvin was on Floyd's neck. I can tell you in um, a civil case, I would definitely hammer away with the defense that my client was following his training. Because if he's following his training, then what else is he supposed to do? Because if you go outside of your training or you don't follow department policy, you know, depending on the state statute or not so much in federal cases, but definitely in state cases, violations of training and policy may become an issue. And if we violate or if officers violate their training, it certainly can become an issue in federal cases as well. But here in this particular case, you know, we only have Officer Chauvin who is on trial. So if Officer Chauvin is saying, well, you know, I was only following my training, then the jury may in some respects feel sympathetic to Officer Chauvin, but then they don't have anybody else to blame like they would in a civil case. Because in a civil case, you know, typically it's the officer that's on trial, the government entity that's on trial, possibly the chief of police or the command staff that's on trial. And I've seen cases where jurors would sympathize with the officer in saying, hey, I was only following my training. You know, they can sympathize with the officer and then they can hold, you know, the um, the chief of police or the trainer or the administrative staff somehow liable. But unfortunately for, for Officer Chauvin, he doesn't have that luxury. So if the jury is conflicted, who else are they going to lay the blame on? So really, the key question in this case is, why was Chauvin using that knee pin technique for such a long time? I don't know if we'll see him actually take the stand, but his attorneys have already argued on cross-examination that there were a number of other factors that may have influenced his decision-making. I will tell you, I have represented a number of officers where they have been in situations similar to what uh, Officer Chauvin was confronted with. And it's very difficult to use 2020 hindsight because, you know, we already know what the outcome is, right? 
right? You know what the outcome, every, and every juror knows what the outcome was of involving Mr. Floyd. Uh, unfortunately, when officers are in the situation, in the heat of the moment, um, there were people that were standing around. They're obviously in a business area. Uh, vehicles are traveling up and down the street. I know that a crowd started to develop. Uh, they were verbal, but, uh, you know, there is some level of concern about, you know, things that are developing and officers don't have any control of certain situations. And while it is true, Mr. Floyd was on the ground, but the fact that he is handcuffed and on the ground, that does not eliminate, you know, a threat completely. It just doesn't. And, uh, you know, so again, I'm curious to know what was in Officer Chauvin's mind. But the fact that somebody is laying on the ground, they are handcuffed, you know, the threat of injury has not been eliminated 100%. Laura Scary is an attorney and partner at Diano and Scary. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. One of the experts brought in by the prosecution was Sergeant Jody Steger, a use of force expert with the Los Angeles Police Department, who testified that Chauvin chose to use deadly force on George Floyd when he should have used none. On Wednesday, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, cross-examined Steger, where he argued that George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, while the police were attempting to load him into the squad car, could actually be construed as a form of resisting arrest. Sometimes people will say, I'm having a heart attack, right? I think I'm having a heart attack. Don't take me to jail. Take me to the hospital. Yes. Right. And it's fair to say that the vast majority, well, I shouldn't say the vast majority, it's fair to say that one of the things that an officer has to do in the assessment of the reasonableness of his use of force is take into consideration what the suspect is saying and how he's acting. Yes, 100%. Right? So if somebody is saying, I can't breathe, and they're passing out and they're not resisting, that's one form of an analysis, right? Yes. Because the actions of the suspect are consistent with the verbal uh, utterances he's making. Right? Yes. Other times, and in this particular case, when Mr. Floyd was initially saying that he couldn't breathe, he was actively resisting arrest. Initially, when he was in the backseat of the vehicle, yes. Police officers are rarely convicted or even charged for deaths that occur while in their custody. And the verdict in this trial is being watched closely by police reform advocates as an indication of how the legal system will treat cases such as this going forward. My name is Randy Shrewsbury, um, and I'm the executive director for the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform. A former police officer himself, Shrewsbury says that police are woefully undertrained for most of the encounters they're called upon to deal with. And what little training they do receive overemphasizes use of force responses. About a third of a police officer's training is dedicated to use of force. So it's the overwhelming emphasis throughout a police officer's training and as well as, as field training and really about the kind of even the culture of policing. Uh, so with that is, is that they're given a lot of tools, uh, both with firearms, right? Uh, you know, so if they have to use deadly use of force, but as well as a lot of non-lethal choices um, that can range from uh, using pepper spray, perhaps a taser, 
pain compliance methods, right? Uh, so, you know, things like arm bars or kind of quasi, um, you know, karate or jujitsu kinds of types of moves. So that's what they're trained on. That's what they practice uh, to do. However, what I will say, uh, you know, I was a police officer for 13 years. And what, what I will say is, is that the reality of, of trying to get even someone under control isn't always as clinical as what, what you know, what, what the training suggests. at least it was in my experience, and they're not people who are trying to necessarily harm you. They're just resisting um, the arrest overall, or they may be trying to get away. So your adrenaline is pumping, people are sweating, um, there's size differentials. I, I'm a smaller guy in height, um, so you know almost everyone that I arrested, I'm five foot seven, so they, they, they were always taller than me almost. So, you know, grabbing a hold of someone who doesn't want to be grabbed a hold of and, you know, having them, you know, put their hands behind their back or being cuffed, it doesn't always go uh, very smooth. And sometimes I think that, um, you know, anybody, but, uh, but you know, specifically in this, you know, conversation is that police officers are just going to do whatever it takes at that moment to kind of get someone under control. As you say, the risk of death by homicide is ingrained in many parts of police training, despite the fact that it's actually quite rare. But I assume you're not saying that use of force training isn't necessary, right? Just that it receives too much emphasis compared to other kinds of training? We're studying right now to see about correlations between fear-based training or warrior training and use of force. And, and our earlier data is suggesting the more that you train people like to be soldiers, the more they're going to act like soldiers, of course. But we also have to think about kind of the fundamentals of police training overall in the United States. Is There's a couple of points. Is First is there's 37 states in the United States allow the cops to work before they're even trained. Uh, and this is what the authority to arrest to use deadly force. On average, they have about a year to go to the academy. So that that's just insane in of itself that 37 states allow this to happen. And if you're in one of these 37 states and you call 911 or you're getting pulled over by the police, the reality is you have no idea if that officer's even been trained at all. He's been trained on firearms because that has to be done. There's a pre-basic training. But then when we look overall, you know, so the average is about six or seven months that officers receive training in the United States. That's less than cosmetologist or hairstylist in every single state. So what we believe is that when we talk about even like warrior policing, we're about, you know, an emphasis on tactics is, is yes, like the amount of time that they're spending, that might be okay to prevent, you know, death by homicide. But when we look at a proportional, because they're only getting such a short amount of time for training, then this becomes the overarching shadowing of what their work is. And then as they walk out, they have a elevated sense of fear that really doesn't, doesn't drive with the statistics of the job. Randy Shrewsbury is the executive director for the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform. And that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today. Uncommon Law is produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer for Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening.
My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.